Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming out tonight. It's really great to see all of you here. I want to welcome you on behalf of Alex Lang and really all of the staff of First Presbyterian Church to our first storytelling hour, God's Honest Truth. This was Alex's brainchild. Um, It was something he conceived of based on the Moth Radio Hour on NPR Radio, if any of you are familiar with that. I am Judy Hockenberry, and I'm the Associate Pastor for Pastoral Care, and I'm your hostess tonight because, sadly, Alex had to go to Virginia. His mother suffered a massive heart attack last Thursday, and she did pass away on Tuesday morning. So he is with his wife, Courtney, and their two children, and he is with the rest of his family in Virginia, and asked me to be your host. Ever since Alex arrived here at First Presbyterian Church, he has wanted to create a forum where members of our church are able to share more deeply with one another. He's wanted to create this forum for personal storytelling because in our stories we learn about each other and we find places where our lives actually intersect that we may never have been aware of before that. I'm sorry that Alex isn't here tonight for the premiere, but I know he will be watching on the video that is being recorded. The reason why Alex wants this to happen is because we're a worshiping community of 1,100 people. And when you are a worshiping community of 1,100 people with roughly 500 to 550 in worship every Sunday, and not the same 550, about half of that 550 rotates week to week, you just don't have that many opportunities to get to know each other well, particularly in our fast-paced society these days. One of the gifts of being a pastor is that we get to hear so many amazing stories. We get to hear them from members of our church and from people that just need to talk. Often, after I tell a story of someone's life at their funeral or memorial service, I have several people come up to me and say things like, I never knew that about Sue, or I never knew that about Joe. And these are people that have worshipped with them in this community for 40, 50, or more years. The stories I hear and that Alex and TC also hear are often stories filled with pain. They are also filled with the evidence of God's grace and mercy and God's unconditional love. The stories speak to the power of redemption and resilience. The stories are beautiful and compelling, and they do have a way of drawing us closer in relationship. This is why, following our program today, there will be a small reception in the parlor. If you didn't come for supper or you didn't have a chance to eat your dessert after supper, there's still another chance over in the parlor. And it gives you an opportunity to interact with our storytellers and with one another to share thoughts and ideas that come up through the sharing 
of these stories. Tonight is the first of two evenings where we are presenting God's honest truth. The next evening will be on Wednesday, July 12th. The rules for tonight are simple. You will hear stories that will make you laugh, smile, cry, and clap. And we invite you to do all of those things as you feel moved. Our theme for the evening is Barriers, Stories About Overcoming Life's Obstacles or Challenges. So let's get things started. I'm sorry to let you know that Mario Alberico is not able to be with us tonight because of his poor health, an obstacle or challenge that he overcomes daily. But we are going to start this evening with Susan Kogan. Susan, come on forward. Good evening. I would like to share my personal story about overcoming life's challenges. I'm the mother of a gay son, Robert, who I love very much and am very proud of. He is now 36 years old, living and working in New York City. Growing up, Robert was a very bright and sweet child who had a normal upbringing in a quiet northwest suburban neighborhood. He did well in elementary and middle school and had many friends. In junior high, we noticed he was becoming more difficult, acting out occasionally, and his grades began to slip. We felt that he just wasn't applying himself. In high school, things went from bad to worse. His grades were poor, and he became resentful of authority. In his sophomore year, he abruptly quit the high school swim team, despite being one of the best swimmers. He lost interest in school and didn't seem to care what his parents or his teachers thought. So we decided to try psychological counseling as we realized that he needed to have someone to talk to who was not emotionally involved in the issue. As a teenager, he was struggling with the realization that he was different. I think it's hard for anyone who feels that they're in a minority. The low point was in May of 1997 when Robert threatened to commit suicide. Looking back, all of the warning signs were there, and he was crying out for help. The warning signs for major depression were there. Um, parents who reject their LGBT teenagers actually increase the odds that their children will experience depression and attempt suicide. Robert was dealing with one of the most difficult emotional issues that anyone could experience, the realization that he was gay and trying to come to terms with it. One of his primary concerns was that his family wouldn't accept him and his parents and he was, if he told them that he was gay. At that time, I felt homosexuality was wrong and against the teachings of the Bible. Another problem for him was harassment at, at school for being perceived as gay. A boy in our neighborhood had actually been harassing him for years 
on the bus and at school. In fact, nine out of 10 LGBT teenagers have experienced being bullied at school, and 30% of all completed suicides have been related to sexual identity crisis. Not only is it difficult for the individual to come out, but it is, it is extremely hard for the family to go through the coming out process as well. I wondered if there was something that I had done to cause it. I was reluctant to talk to others because I was afraid of what they might think. I was worried about the reaction of my family members and friends and wondered whether or not our relationship would change when they found out. It takes time to go through the many emotional stages that anyone would experience in this kind of a situation. And it was very stressful for our family emotionally. Both Robert and I were prescribed antidepressants. I had always been a stay-at-home mom who was very involved with my children's lives and activities. Yet this situation completely threw me for a loop. I didn't know where to turn or what to do um, because I had never dealt with this kind of an issue before nor did I know anyone else who had. During this uh, period, as a parent, you also realize that some of your preconceived ideas and expectations might not turn out as you had planned. And there is a sense of loss over what might have been, for example, future grandchildren. So what helped us get through this difficult time? Well. We realized that professional counseling was exactly what we needed to do, both as a family and individually. Counselors can listen and provide non-judgmental suggestions and help validate your feelings. We also went to the support group PFLAG, which stands for Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays where we realized that we weren't the only ones dealing with this issue. It was a revelation to meet with other parents who had gone through some of the same experiences that we had. And it was comforting to see how other parents had accepted their children and were proud of them. Roberts High School also had a support group which he attended. It was also helpful to do reading on the subject of homosexuality and the overwhelming preponderance of evidence has proven that people do not choose their sexuality. It is something that you are born with, like being left-handed or having blue eyes. The authors of the book, The Psychobiology of Sexual Orientation, have reviewed research over the last 15 years into why people are gay. And they have concluded that people are born with their sexuality defined. It is not the result of their relationships with other people in their early life. They have concluded that sexual orientation is determined by a combination of genetics and hormonal activity in the womb and that upbringing, childhood experience, and personal choice have little or no influence.
Researchers estimate that between 5 and 10% of the general population are gay or lesbian. It was also helpful to speak to pastors who were very understanding on this issue. As a Christian, I have read and studied the Bible, and I do understand the difficult issues that this matter raises. I feel that our faith teaches us not to judge others, but to strive to be more tolerant and to endeavor to show forgiveness and compassion as Jesus would have done. It has been many years since Robert came out to us, and I have done a 180-degree turnaround in my thinking on this issue. Fortunately, many things have improved for the LGBT community in this country and around the world since then, although we still have a long way to go. You can never predict what sorts of experiences life is going to present you with, but you can learn from them and hopefully try to make this world a better place. In faith and through prayer, God can help us to grow in our understanding and give us the courage to speak out on controversial subjects. I truly feel that I have learned to love and accept my son as the wonderful person he is, and I remain profoundly joyful and grateful for this unanticipated gift from God. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan. And now I'd like to invite Fernando up, Fernando Aguia. I want to be like Alex and bring a prop, so it's for him. Hello. All right, good evening, everyone. All right, December 1980, I was 11 years old. I remember standing on a stage with my parents, my grandma, my sister, looking at all these people, wondering what's going on. There was a man speaking Spanish, giving a, a, a speech to a crowd of people. Old men were crying, not understanding what was going on. I remember seeing flyers, seeing symbols, PSOE, UGT, I'm not, not knowing what they meant. After a while, after some discussion, we walked over to a wall that had a shroud. And as some more officials gave some few, few more words, they pulled the shroud down, and I saw Plaza Fernando Aguia. Not sure what that meant. I knew it was something that had to do with my grandfather, but I had no idea what he had done. Obviously, he had done something important to motivate, to move all these people, but I wasn't really sure. Questions I had, but at 11, they weren't a priority. As I grew, I started wondering more what, what happened in 1980, what motivated all these people, what made these veterans, these hardened veterans cry when they were talking about my grandfather. Finally, I asked my father and my grandmother, Mima, to tell me this story. And they gave me a story that made me realize how close I was to not ever existing. In 1931, a 23-year-old young man, 
migrated from Malaga, Spain, to Canary Islands, to Gran Canaria, which is the island of, Gran of, of uh, Canary Islands, in a town called Agate. He was a pharmacist. He took over the pharmacy of the town, working side by side with the physician, dispensing medicine to the locals there and the, the town people. He was a socialist, almost an anarchist, with no belief in God. Um, he, he, took up the, he took up the fight for the working class. He was arrested numerous times on many strikes, fighting for the working class. During that time in the 1930s, Spain, just like the other European countries, were recovering from World War I. At the same time, Spain was trying to find their political identity. There are many groups, socialists, fascists, communists, uh, democratics, political parties, trying to, vi trying to vie for that power as well as th overthrow the monarchies. In 1936, in, um, let me see, uh, before that happened, in 1935, this young pharmacist slash socialist leader went to a dance and met a woman, Herminia Dos Santos, the Aleman. They soon, they, they soon fell in love and began a courtship that lasted about a year, writing to each other every day. They were soon married, a civil ceremony, the first civil ceremony in Gran Canaria. In 19, uh, let's see, in 1936, um, I'm sorry, in February 1936, Spain had a, a general election. In that general election, the Popular Front won the election. The Popular Front consisted of left-wing left-wing groups, mostly socialist parties. As this young man was a socialist leader in Gran Canaria, Gran Canaria, he was made the governor of the northern territory of Gran Canaria. A lot of the government was socialist, but there were a lot of people, specifically in the military, that didn't agree with the change. In particular, there were three generals that were fascists, and they were backed by Germany and Italy at that time, and they planned and, and executed a coup. In July of 17, 1936, the coup began. The coup was primarily led by a man named Francisco Franco. He led a unit of battle-hardened soldiers who were who, who had been training in Africa, doing, uh, having conflicts in Africa, in, in Canary Island, in Gran Canaria. And, and with that, he was sure the coup would be successful. The young governor, hearing of the coup, began mobilizing the people, anybody that was loyal to the republic. Gather your weapons. We need to fight. We need to form a resistance against this coup. At the same time, he sent his wife, Herminia, to Las Palmas to go gather information. At the time, she was also two months pregnant. Go get information in Las Palmas, come back. I need to know what Franco's movements are. We'll meet at this bridge in a town called Arucas. While he was moving his resistance to Arucas, Herminia went to Las Palmas to gather information. As she was making her way back, she encountered fellow resistance fighters, and together they started making their way back to the meeting place at this bridge. As they were going from town to town, they encountered soldiers and they started fighting. What she was doing was she was leading these resistance fighters, telling them, we need to do this, I need to get to my husband and give him the information that I had found. 
So she had ordered these resistance fighters to continue fighting while she made a daring escape to um, meet her, her husband. They reunited at the bridge and then continued fighting. After about five days of fighting and running, they realized all is lost. There was no way they were going to be able to resist this, this army, these soldiers. So them and four other uh, leaders, political leaders, decided they needed to escape. So they obtained a boat in the port of Las Nieves with plans to escape going south around the islands and escape to the African coast. They boarded the boat on July 22nd, headed south towards Africa. During the journey, the captain of the boat informed the passengers we're having engine problems. I'm going to drop you off at this beach. There are caves there. You can stay there, and I'll be back the next day. The boat never came back the next day. Two days later, on July 24th, at dawn, a military boat showed up and began barraging the caves with cannons, uh, artillery from the cannons. The fugitives realized they weren't going to be able to escape, so they surrendered. The soldiers came in, arrested the fugitives, and took them back to the capital, Las Palmas. The men were placed in prison in um, the uh, castle of San, San Francisco, and Arminia was taken to a women's detention se center separate from them. On August 1st, the couple was reunited uh, for the first time after not seeing each other for six, seven, six days. But the, reuni the reunion was short-lived as they were brought together for a trial. Armenia was charged with ordering soldiers and, ex and escaping capture, and the young governor was, was um, convicted of leading the resistance. The verdict came down, execution, death for him, life imprisonment for her. On August 6th, Armenia was brought down to be with her husband. They spent the morning together, he told her he loved her, he told her to take care of their, of their son, keep, always follow their beliefs and their ideals. As they, he was led away, she stayed alone in the room until she heard the gunfire that killed her husband, the father of her unborn son. After serving six months in solitary confinement, Erminia gave birth on February, 20, 30, February 23, 1937, to young boy. The birth was very difficult. She lost a lot of blood. The doctors didn't think she was going to survive, so they gave the baby to her mother while the doctors waited for the inevitable. Miraculously, she survived. In 1940, they were released from jail after spending three years uh, on probation. Although they were free from prison, they were still not free from the watchful eye of the new government. The... Um, they continued to live their lives on the island, just under the, under the new government, trying to survive. In 1950, Mima, or Erminia came home, home from work early, and she decided to go pick up her son at school. When she approached the school, she found him pledging allegiance to the fascist flag, to the flag that killed her husband, the father of this young boy. At that moment, she said, I've had enough. We're not gonna, I'm not going to allow my son to, to pledge allegiance to a government 
that murdered his father. The next day, she booked a one-way passage to Argentina where her brother had lived. Mima never married again. She remained loyal to her husband um, for all those years. Her life consisted of providing everything she could for her young son, my dad. She, she sacrificed her life for him. I loved Mima very much. I didn't realize what kind of woman she was. To me, she was a kind, generous, caring woman who raised me. What I realize now is what a strong and compassionate person she was. I miss my Mima. Thank you. Thank you, Fernando. Our next guest storyteller is Francie Taylor. Come on up, Francie. Okay, I'm going to just hold this. <laughs> so I'm Francie Taylor, and um, although we didn't have to particularly discuss any kind of spiritual you know, topics, some of my best material is about my religious upbringing, so I decided that I'd go with that. So if you can uh, bear with me for a few minutes, I'll take you into the journey of the uh, inner workings of an ex-evangelical. Yes. So, not that there's anything wrong with that. So, um, I, uh, there were a few influences that kind of all came together to kind of create this system of belief that I had growing up. And so, I'm fortunately for all of you, I'm going to have to delve into my childhood for just a minute. So, those three influences were... Uh, my parents, obviously, they're always in there somewhere. And then the schools that I attended and the churches that I attended growing up. So starting with my parents, um, they divorced when I was three. They both remarried, and they're, they've been happily married ever since, so that's good. My stepfather um, grew up Catholic, and my mom, I think, was she went to church sometimes. But as adults... They didn't, as part of their spiritual practice, attend a church. So that's kind of where that is. And then I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and the school systems there were pretty good, but things got dicey <laughs> about middle school. So my mom pulled me out of public schools and introduced me to this very small, non-denominational, evangelical Christian school. So on the first day of sixth grade, I'm sitting in this classroom full of people, little little kids, and they all have their King James Bibles on their desk, you know. And our teacher was doing this thing called Bible drills, and we, well, not we, because I had no idea what I was doing, but all the other little kids were, you know, waiting, anticipating, you know, with, with their whole hearts. So the teacher would call out, some random book of the Bible like Hezekiah and they'd all start like flipping through and then whoever found it first and raised their hand got the prize. So that's how <laughs> that's how things started in the sixth grade. And then for the next six years it kind of went like this. So we had Bible verses that we memorized every week for a grade and at one point I knew the entire 12th chapter of Romans by heart with correct punctuation in the King James. So, 
in addition to that, which has sometimes been great um, to have that in there somewhere, but um, we also learned a number of things, some helpful, some not so helpful. The earth is 13,000 years old. Adam and Eve are the first human beings. There's no such thing as evolution. And if you do not happen to be of the variety of, of faith that professes Jesus as your Lord, and you say the prayer, you invite him into your heart, you're going to burn. So, so you're just destined to eternal damnation, which was kind of unfortunate because my stepdad was Catholic, and I don't think they necessarily say that prayer. So, you know, I was really worried about him for like many, many years. So, so there's that. And then the religion classes um, included some really fascinating video material. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this movie. Have you ever seen A Thief in the Night from 1972? Thief in the Night, anyone? See, that's because you're that's because you're Presbyterian. So I saw this movie as maybe a middle schooler, and it's kind of like the original Left Behind movie. <laughs> so the thing that like sticks out in my mind is, I don't remember how it happened, but this woman comes home or she wakes up or something, and she walks into the bathroom, and the razor, the electric razor, is plugged into the wall, and it's running, but it's in the sink because he's been raptured up to heaven with all the other good people in the world and everybody else is left for like fending for themselves in the end of days. So by the end of this movie, all these middle schoolers are like ready to pee their pants, you know? And so <laughs> it was just the worst. But then there was another video that really kind of had a huge impact on me. And it was a video about, it was a documentary style little bit about the evils of Eastern religion, particularly yoga and meditation. And so in this video, people are like moaning and screaming and flailing their arms and their hair is all crazy. And in my mind, this is what yoga looked like all around the world. Okay, this is yoga right here. And I was like, whoa, I don't want anything to do with this. So. And then the hard-earned dollars that my parents were paying for this private school education taught me that um, meditation, if you meditate on anything other than the Word of God, like the Bible verses that I'd been memorizing every week, if you empty your mind, then it becomes the devil's playground. So, you know, you've got this idea that uh, a teacher is standing in front of this class and saying, if you empty your mind, you are totally asking for some demon possession. So that is also right out. So, so then there's the, that, so that was happening at school. And then the church thing. So because I was being taught in every subject, they, in every book that I had that I studied, there was this theology that was woven in, you know, for social studies and science and all of these things. So, um, you know, I just, I just couldn't really imagine, um, my, like, for example, like my stepdad, you know, I just, I think saving him <laughs> was like a part-time job, you know, because I just was so worried about his mortal soul. And so, I would slide little Bible verses under his door or like Oswald Chambers, 
you know, little bits of information. And sometimes I would sneak out in the morning to his car and I would leave little like tear stained notes about how much God loved him in his car. I was like a stealthy Bible ninja. And so, (laughs) you know, so all of that was going on. And then with the church thing, Mike, my stepdad didn't go to church, but he respected my budding faith. And so in the seventh grade, after I had truly accepted Jesus into my heart, because I totally did not want to be left behind, um, he decided he would take me to church, and then he would pick me up at the end. So I, I kind of went to church on my own from that time on. And there was nobody either at school or at church with me, another adult, to say, yeah, that piece right there, that you might not want to hang on to, you know? So it was just me getting all this information coming from all these different directions, but it was all the same information, you know? So I went to these churches that were also evangelical because that's what I really needed to do if I wanted to go to heaven. So so then if you pile on top of all of that, um, the the difficulty I had coping with the vastly different worlds of my divorced parents, because it was like night and day. When I'd go visit one, it was like living in a completely different world. And then on top of that, I was a silent survivor of sexual childhood sexual assault, and I didn't tell anybody about that till I was probably 15. And then there's my stepdad that I'm perpetually worried about. So, <laughs> so needless to say, I was one of the saddest, most despondent, just painfully perfectionistic kids ever created, or at least I felt that way. And, um, you know, I think it goes without saying that I spent most of my 20s in therapy, <laughs> so, so um, which I highly recommend if you ever get a chance to sit on a couch. If you haven't, it's so worth it. So then <clears throat> I met my husband when I was 26, And I thought, well, this is good because I've done a lot of work, and it seems like he's done a lot of work, so that's going to work out well. And then we got married when I was 30. And then at 31, I decided to do this completely unthinkable thing to me, even like five years before. I went to a yoga class. (laughs) So, you know, I got there about five minutes before it started, And I was 96% certain that nothing bad was going to happen, but I still was looking out, you know. So I walk in, and there are people down-dogging and child's posing, and I'm just taking it all in, and I'm still, like, a little bit nervous. So we get started, and our instructor had the most calming, peaceful, confident voice I've ever heard in my entire life. Even to this day, 11 years later, I can still hear her. And everything was fine. I mean, it was all totally fine. Until the end, when she wanted us to do this thing called final relaxation. At which point, I'm supposed to lie on my mat, close my eyes, and empty my mind. So they're like, if you have a, like imagine each thought is like a leaf on a tree, and it's floating down the stream, and you just, you let it go. And all I could think was, not today, Satan, not on my watch. So, you know, I'm just like, oh, God, oh, goodness. Okay, so she wants me to 
uh, empty my mind. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to start, you know, meditating on all those Bible verses that I learned growing up. And then she said something about, like, have a mantra. And I'm like, well, that'll be like a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, that's what I'll do. And then (laughs) she started this guided meditation where she's like, okay, everybody just imagine a healing energy coming in through the soles of your feet. And I'm like, well, that's obviously going to be the the fire of the Holy Spirit, because it's not some crazy new age energy that's going to like wrap itself around my soul and choke it out. So uh, we got through all that. And Beelzebub did not inhabit me. So I think it all was a win because (laughs) I don't think I was possessed by a demon that day. So, but the thing is, you know, what happened is I left standing up straighter and my eyes were clearer And I came home to my husband, and he said, you just look like a different person. And I thought, wow, this is what I needed, exactly what I needed all those years I spent being so sad and so lost. And so today, um, a lot of what I believed then is kind of in this heap of ashes in front of me. And there's just like this gentle breeze that's just dispersing it, you know? And I look at that pile, and I don't have any fear because I know that on the other side of every death, there is life. And whatever is left when all of that blows away is just going to be better and richer than what was there before. And at the end of a yoga class, you've probably encountered, you know, the word namaste, and the instructor will always say namaste, and then all the students will say namaste, and it's such a beautiful word, because what it means is um, the spirit in me acknowledges and bows to the spirit in you, and so thank you for listening to my story. Namaste. It's good for the Presbyterians to be reminded of a little of that evangelical truth. I'd like to invite Sue Henderson up next. I think we all kind of had a different idea of what we were going to do up here and whether it works or not, we see. (laughs) On September 27th and 28th, 1988, the lives of the Henderson family changed forever. I was at work when a doctor from Purdue University gave me a call. Our son had been a patient at Purdue, had been a, <coughs> excuse me, a student at Purdue for several weeks, and during that time he had been suffering from strep throat off and on. I encouraged him to go to the health service and get a mono test and a complete blood count. I was sure he had mono. Isn't that what happens to college students? You know, isn't that what, what they do? You know, kissing disease or whatever. Later that afternoon, uh, I got a call from the doctor saying, Jimmy's, his name was Jimmy, Jimmy's blood counts are really out of whack, and there's something serious the matter. I called my husband, Jim, and took off for Purdue. I brought, to say the least, I was concerned. No, I think I was panicked. But you know, I'm not a person that panics if you know me, so this was pretty unusual for me to uh, be afraid or or not know what was going to happen. I took Jimmy to the emergency room at Northwest Community Hospital. It seemed like forever before the doctors 
saw us and did anything. But then the doctor came in and said, we think he has leukemia. He, in the morning, we will do a bone marrow aspiration, and, but he needs to stay in the hospital overnight. So he stayed in the hospital overnight. The next morning, in the parking lot, I ran into another doctor that I had known from before, who was an infectious disease doctor, who was uh, called in on the case. He uh, said, we think he has leukemia. It's, it's uh, really a good thing that he has that, as compared to many other things, that there's an 85% cure rate for childhood leukemia. He said, but we haven't gotten the results back completely yet. Jimmy did have acute lymphocytic leukemia. The oncologist made calls to Children's Memorial Hospital and arranged for him to be admitted there. He assured us that that was the place he should be because he had a childhood disease even though he was 18 years old and that's where he belonged. All through the treatment, uh, they talked about cure rates for different things and I said the 85% rate for uh, this childhood leukemia. Unfortunately, since Jimmy was uh, 18, an older child, a boy, and an older teen, his uh, rate of survival was cut to 50-50. But that didn't bother me. I didn't see any reason he couldn't be in the good 50% part. We drove down to the hospital in the city. He was admitted, and he was started on chemo the next day. But he had a huge open wound on his hip that he had gotten playing softball a few days before, sliding into home, trying to stretch a triple into a home run. He was very competitive. They started him on high doses of antibiotics and to get rid of the infection. The next five weeks were a real roller coaster for us. He was one week in the hospital, one week at home, and three more weeks back in the hospital. He uh, went back to the hospital on October 12th, and on that day he was complaining of severe pain in his left shoulder. After further subsequent testing, uh, they concluded that he had an infection, a fungal infection in his lung. So the doctors decided that the best course of treatment would be to remove part of his lungs in hope of getting rid of the fungal infection. It just seemed like one thing after another was going on. You know, you just didn't know what was going to happen next. He, uh, during his uh, surgery for the lung, partial lung removal, he, uh, they did another test, another bone marrow aspiration, and found that he was indeed in remission. This was good news. However, because of the surgery and the fungal infection, he was unable to go back on chemotherapy for a while. His weight began to drop, and he went from about 170 pounds to 128 pounds. He was in a lot of pain, and this was not good. It did not sound good. I think I spent most of my time sending out little prayers saying, please, God, please, let's get rid of this. Cure him for me, would you please? Uh, Jim had to leave town for another family emergency. This seems like things were going from bad to worse. And I just kept thinking, I know this can be okay. I just know this can be okay. Sometime, someday it will go away. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I ra actually ran into a psalm. That in my Bible study, we were actually reading a different psalm. But right there on the next page was Psalm 102. 
And Psalm 102 said, and I'm going to read it, because I'm afraid I'll mess it up if I don't. Lord, hear my prayer. Let, me, let my cry reach you. Don't hide your face from me. Listen to me. Answer me quickly as I cry out to you. I think I might have said please just because that's who I am, but, you know. Uh, why, why couldn't he survive this? I just didn't understand. We, uh, we, were, we went to church every week. We paid our taxes. We tried to be nice people. We tried to be nice to other people. And we took care of our family, and we took care of others. We ju- it just didn't seem right. But the answer that came to me was, try not to worry. I, God, will take care of everything. It will be all right. Okay. <laughs> While we were at the hospital, um, volunteers would come in and visit with me uh, during the day sometimes. And all of these volunteers that were coming by visiting me were uh, mothers who had had children with cancer. They were part of a program called Parent to Parent Program. And this program was uh, funded by a family who had lost a son and felt that the best support that they had received was from other parents who had gone through the same things that they had. And so they felt that this was a really good thing to have there at the hospital. And it was very helpful. These women would come in and sit and we'd just talk maybe about what was going on or about our lives. It didn't have to be anything great and wonderful. It was just a good person to visit with. And they really helped. And I was hoping that someday I could be part of that program too. Then it was November 1st. It was a Tuesday. I was on the session at the time, and I was scheduled to attend Presbytery that night. Since it was at Fourth Presbyterian Church, I thought maybe it was something that was doable. Jimmy got his stitches out late in the afternoon. He was sitting there eating a red popsicle, and it was a the first time he'd really not had a lot of pain in several weeks. My mother-in-law and Sarah, his sister, were there, and my husband Jim was on his way from the office to sit there, so I decided to go. About 8 o'clock, I came back, and when when I returned and got off the elevator, the three of them were standing there not looking happy at all. Jimmy had started bleeding profusely, and the doctors and nurses couldn't stop it. They had called a code on him. We thought September 28th and 27th were bad days. November 1st topped it all. We buried Jimmy on November 5th, a cold, dreary, rainy Saturday. The sanctuary was almost full of people. All of his friends had come home from all over the country. The parents were holding on to the children tightly, thinking, this could just as well have been me as you. A couple of his friends and his girlfriend spoke at the program. This is, I never thought of this as a barrier, but it really was. You don't expect to lose a child. You, it makes you a different person. It makes you different from other people. It makes you different inside. I remember the first time I laughed. I don't remember what it was about or when it was, but I do remember the feeling that I really let go and was able to laugh again. I remember the first Christmas, which was only a few days later. But my my barrier really opened a gate for me. I 
in October of uh, 1993, five years later, I joined that parent-to-parent group. And now every Thursday, I go down to Lurie Children's Hospital in the city, and I go in and talk to the parents whose children are there being treated and explain to them that I have sat where they are sitting now. I also go to funerals and talk to the families and explain to them that I have walked in their shoes and that they can be a survivor also. We have no elephant in the room where the Henderson family is concerned. We talk about Jimmy. I have seven grandchildren and a couple of sons-in-law who never, never knew Jimmy, but feel like they do. We talk about him, all the silly things he used to do, the trouble he would get in in high school, and all the different things from since he was a little boy. I think uh, my grandchildren probably know more about dying young than some of us sitting around here do. About 10 years after he died, I ran into a doctor who is a pediatric oncologist at Rush. She was at the Children's Hospital when he was being treated. And she said, I just want to share something with you. She said, I want you to know that Jimmy made a difference in how I plan the treatment for my patients now. That was really a wonderful thing she said to me, and it really helped me. Isn't that what we all hope for in life? That we, be, that we love and be loved, and that we make a difference, and that some of our barriers may become gates. Thank you, Sue, for sharing that. Todd Smith. Todd? All right, so my story starts um, in uh, Manchester, England in uh, 1977. I was seven years old. Um, When I was in the schools there, um, it was discovered rather quickly that I was learning at a a much slower pace than the students around me. Um, At the time in England, instead of getting the help that you would get here in the United States now, um, they basically labeled me as not too bright. Um, that really didn't help things. Um, it infuriated my parents. And, um, and there wasn't really much to be done at that point. But I did make a connection um, in a music class. Um, I walked into class one day and saw this instrument up in the corner. And I asked the music teacher, what is that? He's like, it's a trombone. So I'm like, that's really cool. Can I play it? He's like, why don't you take it home? So I took it home. Um, I proceeded to terrorize my family, uh, making all kinds of interesting sounds because I hadn't had a lesson, of course. I was just making these ugly sounds that sounded kind of like uh, an elephant. And so, um, so my parents kicked me out of the house, and I, was, I had to practice outside. Luckily, we didn't have neighbors anywhere nearby. So now I'm going to fast forward a little bit to, to uh, 1980. Um, I'm 10 years old, living in Chicago. Family moved back to the States. I was um, at a school on the, in, in uh, Uptown called Stewart School, and I started to get the help that I really needed. Um, they labeled me as dyslexic. Um, but when, when my parents met with, the, uh, with the, the teachers there, the teachers were very hesitant to actually diagnose me as dyslexia, with dyslexia because of the stigma that goes along with that. That 
infuriated my parents again, and, and they said, no, he needs to have this diagnosis. Um, he's already got a stigma, so just give him the diagnosis. Um, so it happened, got the diagnosis, and that opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, so I, st- I started out, when we came back to the States, I was, I was in uh, Stewart School for a little while. I got picked on. That was in, I don't know if you know about Uptown, but it, it's much better than it used to be. Um, when we were living there, it was a very rough area. That school was particularly rough, and um, I, was, I was picked on quite a bit. Um, so soon, by the time I got to sixth grade, luckily, my parents had put us on, a, my brother and I, on a waiting list for a really nice school called Franklin Fine Arts Center in Chicago um, in Old Town. And uh, that was really the right place for us. We were very happy to go there, even though it was a very long bus ride from where we were living at the time. My favorite teacher there was Mrs. Ferguson. She was my special education teacher. Um, She helped me with uh, learning strategies to help um, get through school uh, so that I could manage and get good grades. By the time I was in eighth grade, I was getting much better grades, um, and I was ready for high school. My parents enrolled me um, at Gordon Tech High School in Chicago. Um, at, at, at that school, they had a special learning uh, uh, place for students with disabilities. Um, and I learned many, many coping skills to, to get me prepared for high school. And at some point while I was in high school, I looked at my mom and said, you know what, mom, I, I have a learning difference, not a learning disability. And at that point, she and my, and my dad both knew that I was going to be just fine. Um, so it came time to apply for college, and uh, I, I knew that I wanted to go into music education. I actually, I actually knew that when I was a, um, a junior in high school. I, had, I, was, I was watching my high school band director. I was like, you know what? I can do that. Um, and um, so when I was applying for, when I was looking at colleges, it was ca- kind of between DePaul and the University of Illinois. Both had good music programs. And... Um, and when I, when I went and auditioned for DePaul, they, they offered me a small, teeny tiny little scholarship. And if you know DePaul, it's a very expensive college. So I'm like, that's not really going to help things. So um, I, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to study with a trombone professor at the University of Illinois, Dr. Robert Gray. Um, and um, so I went and, and I, I started to pursue that. But what happened was I, my counselor at Gordon Tech told me, you shouldn't even do that. You shouldn't even apply there. And I'm like, why not? He's like, well, you need an 18 or better on the, AT- on the ACT. I'm like, well, all right. But after three, three attempts, and since I have a learning disability, I didn't have a time test, the best I could do was a 13. So I'm like, well, you know what? I, th- I think I'm going to still apply. He's like, okay. So I applied. Um, and because I have a learning disability, they have a special program at, the, at most colleges, and they had a special program at the University of Illinois. So that was one gate that opened up for me. Another gate was I played a really awesome audition, and they wanted me to come there. So um, soon after I'd, I played my audition, I got the acceptance letter, and, um, and I was pretty happy about that because I had done something that my, my uh, counselor told me you can't do. Um, so I proceeded to quickly make a copy of that acceptance letter. Without saying a word, you know what's coming up next, right? I walked right into the counselor's office, put it down on his table, didn't say a word, just walked out. 
And that was such a great feeling. So my experience at the University of Illinois um, was pretty awesome. I, I got a lot of help. Um, there were volunteers, other students, that would go into the center where I got help from, and they read um, the textbooks for me. Okay, so, they, so that's, that, that was my, my main issue. I was not able to comprehend. I, could, I read really, really slow, and then once I read something, it was gone. But when, if I could listen to it, I, I, could, all, I could retain it, and, I could, and that helped my learning. Um, so, and I was also able to take tests in, in a special place where they weren't timed, and that was also very, very helpful. So now I'm going to fast forward a lot more um, to now I'm teaching band. Um, I've, I've taught band for 23 years and enjoying a, a very successful career. I taught for five years in, in a town called River Grove, um, and now I'm teaching for the last 18 years at River Trails Middle School in Mount Prospect. Um, I later received a, um, a master's degree from the Vandercook College of Music. That was a really big deal for me because there I didn't get any extra help um, for, for my learning disability. In fact, I don't even think they knew that I had a learning disability. Um, and I had to study twice as hard as everyone else because it was a pretty intense program. So here's where the real breakthrough happens. Now I'm 42, I'm, I'm not, when I was, uh, in 2013, I'm 42 years old, and um, Heather and I, and, and Heather and I had just welcomed our daughter Hadley into our lives. I had recently been talking to my brother about um, their oldest son um, who, was, who was having issues with ADHD. And they said, we're getting him this help that's called neurofeedback. And I'm like, what is that? And they're like, well, they, they kind of stimulate your brain and, and they help to, um, you know, kind of remap your brain for you. I'm like, and I knew, I knew that ADHD and dyslexia had a lot in common. So I said to my brother, I'm like, can you find out if there's anyone out there that's working with dyslexics through neurofeedback? He got right back to me and said, in fact, there is, and the leading specialist in that field right now is in Naperville, Illinois. I'm like, what? So, so I immediately contacted um, the doctor at the Neuro Connection in Naperville and went in and had my brain mapped, which is kind of like they hook you up to a bunch of things and they, they just take a, you have to, for that part, you have to stay totally still. You can't even move your eyeballs. It was kind of crazy. Um, but they took a, a, a map of my brain and I went in for the, the consult after that to, for them to tell me, you know, what was going on. It was a good thing I was sitting down because she said to me, she's like, we saw the dyslexia, but we have to talk about something else. Like, well, what do you got to talk to me about? Like, well, you have a traumatic brain injury. I'm like, what? Um, so I, I guess I had gotten my head bopped around a few times. Um, and they, she's like, the good thing is we can fix that too. So I'm like, great, let's go. Sign me up. So uh, they immediately started to work on my brain. Um, and the way they do this is through stimulation. You go in. It's a half-hour session each time. They hook you up to a bunch of probes. You, you watch a movie, I was watching Star Wars, and uh, it, it blanks out sometimes and it comes on and, and it, it's, it's a really cool thing. And it, you leave pretty tired, but you bounce back pretty quick. One time I had to actually just sit in my car for, for a good half hour before, because it, it made it, I was really sleepy. Um, but then I was able to go home. Um, so I did that for quite a while. Uh, and and it, after seven months of treatment, um, I can read an at an average pace, which is pretty amazing. Um, dyslexia at that point was a thing of the past. Um, the, the, uh, so my barrier was from, 
from birth to 42, which is kind of a long time. Um, I never gave up. That was the great thing about this. Um, I have to thank my parents. My mom's here tonight. My dad couldn't be here. I have to thank my parents for helping me through all of this because, you know, they, they, um, they, they saw me through some pretty tough times, um, some, some pretty um, amazing, like, meltdowns at, at home over homework, and uh, I got the most amazing parents anyone could ever ask for. Um, and, and with neurofeedback, really hard work, parent support, teacher support, I can now read stories to my daughter. And, and I, before I got the treatment that I needed, I would read her stories, even though she was, when she was really young, she wasn't really understanding what I was saying. And I, I stopped and started all, like, all over the place, just little kids' books. But now I can read stories, and, and it's really a great, a great thing. I'm enjoying a successful career as a band director. And, and through all of this, I think what I learned the most is that you have to work really, really hard for the success that you get. Um, and I'm, I'm never, that's probably the biggest lesson for me. Thank you. I'd like to invite Jean Draper to come forward now. Good evening. All right, so my story is 12 years ago this June, my life forever changed um, in something that was really kind of unthinkable. My family and I were living in Colorado Springs at the time. I was a 32-year-old mom. I had a two-and-a-half-year-old and a three-month-old baby. And I had just returned back to work. And it was a Sunday afternoon in downtown Colorado Springs. And we were going to go take the kids to this park that they had in the downtown area. And they had this water fountain thing that the kids could run around and play in and whatnot. So we went down that morning, we went and had a nice brunch, and then we go to the park. And we parallel parked alongside the park. And I get out and I'm on the grass side, and I'm leaning in to unbuckle my son. And my husband was street side, and he was getting the baby's bucket out of the base that's in the car. And apparently this was I don't have recollection of this, but there was a young girl who was a permit driver. It was her and her boyfriend, and they were in the boyfriend's dad's pickup truck, and I guess they were trying to parallel park behind us. And the boyfriend went to put his foot on the brake, and he hit the gas, and so he gunned it. The car, their truck ran into our car and hit me, we think, and then drove into the park. The outcome of it all was they think that my, my foot was in the curb and it was hanging on basically by like the Achilles attendant. All the toes and everything were fine, my leg was fine, but the back part of my foot was pretty much gone. Um, we had the baby's stroller set up in the grass and the truck ran over the stroller. So a horrific event that could have actually been so much worse 30 seconds later. Um, my son was still in the car. My husband heard the engine rev and pulled the baby's bucket out of the car. The end result was I ended up losing my leg below the knee. And to kind of backtrack a little bit and give you a preface it, before this all happened, some of my hobbies at the time were I was a runner. And I had just started to dabble into triathlon a little bit. And 
I remember my husband saying to me when he got to me, he was looking me over and he's like, everything was fine. He was like, you were there, but the lights weren't, you know, the lights were on, but nobody was home. And he's like checking you over and then I get all the way down to your leg and I saw it. And he was like, she's going to be pissed. <laughs> so then um, I remember kind of coming to at the park and the EMT and everybody, the fire and everybody there. And, um, you know, you kind of go into like shock a little bit and they're trying to hold me down and we get in the ambulance and they're like, okay, your legs really hurt badly. You're going to go into surgery. And I knew at that moment, I said, I'm going to lose my leg, aren't I? And so we get to the hospital and we're there and it, there's two hospitals you can go to. So the hospital that I wanted to go to, they're like, you know what? They're on divert, too busy, you can't go there. You're gonna go to this other hospital. Well, then there only was one orthopedic surgeon who was on call and he was in surgery at another hospital. So we had to sit and wait and we waited five hours. Um, we were fortunate enough that a friend of ours who our kids went to the same Montessori school was an orthopedic surgeon and he was also a triathlete himself and he came down to kind of give us a second consult and the vascular surgeon was there, and he's like, you know what, Gene? He was like, vascularly, there's nothing for me to put together. And he's like, even if we tried, you would have multiple, multiple surgeries. He's like, you probably wouldn't run again, and you'd have chronic pain the rest of your life. So having five hours to think about it, I finally got to the point, and I said, look, there's three things that I want. One is, I'm a young mother, I wanna be able to take care of my children. Two, I want to run again. And three, I want to wear high heels. <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, don't worry, Jean, you'll be able to do those things. There's a lot of technology out there. It's going to be okay. So that was Sunday night. They finally got to me and they did the surgery to remove my foot and take out the debris and all of that. And I'm thinking, you know what? Who needs a foot? It's all good. I know they have prosthetics. I've got this. So I woke up Monday morning and I'm groggy and they, you know, had to be incubated and can't talk really well. And my husband had to explain to me, he's like, okay, well, that's not the surgery. And I said, well, what do you mean that's not the surgery? And he's like, well, you told them you wanted to do all of those things, right? So in order for you to do that, they've got to go back and take a good portion of your leg so you can have the prosthetics that will allow you to do that. So... That was a little hard to handle, and that was a little hard to digest. But to a day, so Sunday night was the first surgery. Wednesday was when they did the actual amputation. Saturday, I went home, and I had to go figure out how to live my life again with a three-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, and it was kind of ironic because at the time, um, I I work in pharmaceutical sales, and I was selling um, depression medication and anxiety medication. And for the first time in my entire life, I had experienced truly what anxiety and depression was. Um, for the first month, I didn't have a leg or anything. You know, they have to get the leg to heal and the wound to heal, and it has to shrink down to the size it's going to be. And I remember just sitting in my house and people coming over to help. And I couldn't even, like, I couldn't take care of my baby. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't hold her. I couldn't go to the fridge to get what I needed. I couldn't, you know, take her up to bed at night. Um, and just kind of truly just shutting down. And when I look back at it now, I realized, you know, that first year, she kind of missed that connection and that bonding with me because I did definitely kind of push her away. And I did go through the stages 
of, you know, anger and denial and all of that. And, you know, I'll be the first to say, yes, I had my pity party. But at some point, you know, you go through all this rehabilitation. So I would go to physical therapy three times a week for like three or four hours each day to just learn how to walk again, how to go up and down stairs, how to just maneuver things that we do in, you know, day-to-day life. And then it slowly started to like build where it was like, okay, now Jean, you can go to the gym and get in the pool and start moving in the pool. And then the next process was, okay, Jean, you can get on a stationary bike and you can do the bike or you could try to do a stair climber. And the accident happened in June. I went back to work in October and I probably wasn't quite ready to go back to work. Like I had a cane and I was trying to wear like little heels and carry my bag and whatnot. But for me, I made that decision because I wanted to feel normal again. I wanted to get, you know, I was done having my pity party. I needed to get back to my life. And I, they started introducing me to people because I said, you know what, I want to run. And they're like, yeah, you'll do these things. And they introduced me to other amputees who could ski or they could run or, you know, cycle or whatever. And I was introduced to an organization called Challenged Athletes Foundation. And that was a huge turning point for me. And I met all these other remarkable people who were just like me, or they were above the knee, or they were bilateral, or they were missing an arm, um, but they loved sport, and they got back into the game, and they were doing all these things that, you know, you hear people tell you you can do that, but in my mind, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, right, like, that's not happening, and you really can't wrap your head around it, and so I did get my first running prosthesis, and I started setting goals, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to try to run on this thing. It took me, from the time that the accident happened to the time that I actually ran for the first time, was about two and a half years. Um, But I can't tell you what that feeling was like when I did it for the first time. And at that point, I started to begin like, okay, Maybe they, you know, maybe they were right. Maybe I can do this. And so I started just setting these goals. And then I was introduced to more people through the Challenged Athlete Foundation and had the opportunity to go to these camps where they rehabilitate you and you learn how to ride and, and swim and cycle and do all these things. And so then I was introduced to uh, a prosthetist that he's in New York, and he started to sponsor a group of um, athletes who were all different um, disabilities. Mostly, most of them were amputees. Um, Some of them were paraplegic in the wheelies and stuff like that. And I decided to do my first triathlon. Somebody had talked me into saying, okay, Jean, let's try to do a sprint triathlon again. And it was funny because in the whole amputee world, they look at the sport of triathlon as part of the recovery because part of your rehabilitation process is you start in the pool. Then you get to a bike. And the last thing you do is run. Um, And so I did my first sprint triathlon. There was a woman who I was introduced to. Um, Her name was Amy Palmero Winters, and she is the same age as me. She was a below-the-knee amputee because of an accident. She was a single mother, and she holds 
just about every record that you can imagine in triathlon, marathon, ultra marathon. And a friend of mine at the time reached out to her and said, I have a friend who's getting ready to, who's an amputee, a new amputee, and she's getting ready to do her first sprint triathlon. And this woman called me up and gave me some pointers and tips of advice. And then about a year later, I started going to that prosthetic cl clinic. And then I joined um, their team that they were sponsoring. And for me, I guess I have to backtrack a little bit. Um, it's first started with the running. And I set goals where I did my first 5K. And then I did my first 10K. And then one of our friends at the time in Colorado who was a big runner, he goes, Gene, when you do your first half marathon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out there and do it with you because we had moved back to Chicago. And sure enough, he came out there and he did it with me. And I can't say it was pretty. A lot of it in the beginning was brutal and it's ugly, but I was doing it and I was finishing it and I was accomplishing it. So once that started happening, then I, and like I said, I got introduced to all these different groups and had all these different opportunities to really get in the sport of triathlon and running that probably would have never happened to me you know, outside of this accident happening. So one of the things that I had signed up to do was an Olympic distance triathlon. I had never done that distance. I just started dabbling in the sport before I lost my leg. And I signed up for this one that's uh, in Colorado. And then I got pregnant with my daughter, so I had to defer it. And then the following year was when my accident happened. So the whole Olympic thing didn't happen. So when I joined this team, it was called Team Step Ahead um, with the prosthetist out in New York. One of the races he would send everyone to was the New York Triathlon. And it just so happened that it was the national championship race for paratriathlon. So they're like, Gene, you're coming out here and you're doing it. And this was my first time doing that distance in New York in the Hudson River. And I was like, what? Um, <laughs> so I went out there and I did the race. And it turned out that I ended up getting third place in my division. And literally, like, four weeks later, they were like, you qualified for the world championship um, you, you can go to uh, Gold Coast, Australia and compete in the world championship. And so I had the opportunity then, like I think it was five weeks later, to go to Australia and compete uh, in the Olympic distance for paratriathlon in the world championship, and I got the bronze medal there. So I think... That was probably the biggest turning point in all of this that was like, okay, now this is kind of for real, and I'm really kind of doing this, and I'm doing okay at it. So it just started to kind of progress from there, and I continued with these goals because, again, I think I got in my head that I'm like, I can do that, I can do that. I don't want people to look at me differently. I don't want people to look at me like I'm disabled because I, I don't consider myself disabled. So the next thing was uh, in 2010, I did my first marathon. So I had done one marathon the Chicago Marathon back in 2010 prior to my accident. So, or no, in 2003, sorry. Um, so in 2010, I did my first marathon as an amputee. And that woman, Amy Palmaro Winters, came out and she ran it with me. And she holds the world record for that marathon for uh, basically below the knee female. 
and we finished. It was a good race. I had worked so hard for that race. I started training for one before that and got injured and couldn't do it. So then had to wait like eight more months and do the Chicago Marathon. It didn't quite go as well as I planned. I beat my time than when I had two legs, but I knew I could do a little bit better than that. So two months later, I went to Dallas and I ran the Dallas Marathon by myself and I beat my time from Chicago by 25 minutes. So it just, that's kind of really kind of what opened doors for me was like setting these goals and having these milestones and these accomplishments. And then all of a sudden I was introduced to this community of elite athletes. Um, the Challenge, or, uh, uh, Challenge Athlete Foundation basically was set up for a gentleman by the name of Jim McLaren. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. Jim's story is he was, I think he went to Brigham Young. He was a tremendous football player. He was going to go pro, I believe, for New York Giants. He was riding his bike in New York City and got hit by a bus, and he became a below-the-knee amputee. He did remarkable things back in the 80s as a below-the-knee amputee, running marathons, doing triathlons, breaking records of able-bodied people. And he became this huge hero, and then he was doing a triathlon in California on a closed course and got struck by a truck and thrown into a light pole, light pole and then became a, um, like Christopher Rees, which is quadriplegic. And he actually just passed away about five years ago. Um, but that's how this whole organization was set up, and it was uh, world-time Ironman um, champions like Scott Tinley and Bob Babbitt, who set up the organization, to, they did a triathlon in California to raise money for him to get a van so they could get him to these events. And so this foundation is a non-for-profit that now raises money for anybody who's disabled to get back into the sport and provide equipment, training, entry to races and things like that. So all of a sudden, you know, my whole world started changing and all of a sudden I was found myself, I'm like, wow, I'm actually kind of competing and doing some of this stuff and traveling around the world. Um, the last thing then through that was I just kind of kept going. I went from the Olympic distance to the half Ironman distance. Um, com you know, same thing with the marathon. And then right before I turned 40, I was like, well, there's one thing I haven't done. And I always said I would never do it. And I was like, no way, no how. And um, the year I turned 40, I completed my first Ironman. So it's been a long journey, but a wonderful journey. I've had the opportunity now to share my story with a lot of children in the community in different schools. And one of the questions that to this day, it always gets me is, you know, kids will ask, I've had two kids ask this, they said, if you could go back and change anything, would you? And I could tell you probably for the first six years, I don't know if I could say yes to or no to that, but where I'm at today and what I've learned through this whole journey and the person that I am, I can honestly tell you that no, I wouldn't change anything. Um, I think for a long time, I've just learned so much about myself that I'm a stronger person than I ever thought I was. And one of the jokes that my family um, jokes about, I have two older brothers, 
and they always kind of tease me, and they're like, Jean, they're like, la, 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 Jean, you know, just kind of chipping along. And my oldest brother, who's eight and a half years older than me, said to my mom, she goes, he goes, who would have ever thought she would be the one that is stronger than all of us and would have, like, overcome and, you know, turned this around? So I think that's one, been one of the biggest lessons that I've learned about myself. And the last thing is just, you know, the only limits we have are the limits that we set for ourselves. So. That brings our storytelling to a close. I don't know about you, but I've been humbled by hearing these stories of courage and bravery of grace and dignity. And I hope that you will take a moment to greet our storytellers in the parlor, and uh, also that you will take home with you a measure of their courage and determination. Thank you all for being here tonight. We will be back on July 12th. I hope you'll be here again. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And if you wanna learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.